And then also, we have a prayer walk coming up on Sunday. So next weekend on Sunday, right after church, about 1 p.m., uh, there's going to be a prayer walk that's going to start here. Uh, so everybody's going to meet here, and it's going to start about 1 o'clock. And uh, if you want to walk, it's, it's a little bit of a lengthy walk. It's about five miles, and we'll head downtown uh, praying at nine different stops and then coming back up here, finishing here. So start here, stop here, but it is five miles. Just so you guys know, uh, Pastor Nick isn't quite sure if he can make it there. So if somebody wants to, like, push him in a wheelchair, uh, Herman, you take that job. Herman will get you. <laughs> His motorcycle, that's right. <laughs> I don't know if you guys want to want to be uh, anywhere around Nick when he's on his motorcycle. <laughs> You've heard the stories, right? So uh, coming in tonight, one of the cool things that I got to see uh, a hot air balloon kind of off to the south over that direction. I uh, just kind of thought it was neat. It kind of gives you that time to reflect a little bit of, of what it would be like when you're in a hot air balloon and kind of get to see everything from kind of a different picture. And... Um, that different picture is usually from on the ground for me, and especially for Nick, because he's not good with heights. I probably ain't any better. We probably rock, paper, scissors when we have to do anything uh, with any kind of height around here. But we had, uh, Heather and I, and the kid, well, I should say, the kids really wanted a new puppy. So we just got a new puppy. Uh, so we've had a puppy now for two weeks. And I, I say the kids got a puppy, but you guys know, just like I do, the kids really didn't get a puppy. Mom and dad got a puppy that we're taking care of, and the kids get to, you know, have the fluff time where they, you know, enjoy them for five minutes. But one of the cool things is, is at night, I've been taking him out, and he's, you know, been going to the bathroom, and there are these times at night when you walk out, and there's, it's just pitch, pitch black outside, and you look up, and when you're outside, and it's that dark, it's so amazing to see how many stars you can really see. Like, the stars shine a lot more than if you're in some kind of town or city. Uh, and Heather grew up on the other side of Chicago, so she always kind of had the lights from Chicago that kind of shone over where they grew up. And I remember the first time she came and was in the country and got to actually look up and see the stars, and she's like, there are way more stars in the sky tonight. I was like, nope, there's not more. You just see them finally. So it's just kind of that cool awe and wonder when you get to see something that that is that neat. And that's been something that has been really, really neat as I've been, you know, walking my puppy, is uh, being able to walk, look up, see the scar stars, and just see God's creation and how beautiful and wonderful that is. And uh, the first song that we're singing is How Great Thou Art, a great song that continues to reflect on God's glory, his beauty, and his creation. And sometimes we don't really get that opportunity to stop and think about his creation very often, but when we do, uh, his creation is just always awesome and wonderful, isn't it? So if you guys would, would you guys just stand up and sing a couple songs with us?
Feels a little quiet in here. How are you guys doing? See what I mean? <laughs> Try that again. How's everybody doing? Yeah, all right. A little better. Hey, uh, I'm going to send our kids to head to children's worship. Spend the next few minutes kind of geared to their uh, age and specifically for them, uh, which is mostly a way to dismiss my kids and then talk about them while they're gone. <laughs> Middle one, it didn't matter. If it was the oldest, she would turn around. It's all right. Hey, why don't we pray, and then uh, we'll chat for a little bit. Lord, thank you for this evening, uh, the opportunity to gather together uh, to worship your great name, to study your word, uh, to be a people that are wholly invested in worshiping you to know who you are, and as we discover you, to let it uh, continue to change the way that we might uh, act, respond, think, desiring above all things to bring worship to your name. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, um, before we kind of dig in, in fact, I'll, I'll tell you ahead of time, we're getting into the book of Nahum uh, this evening, and so uh, that comes right after Micah, if you've been kind of marking and following along with in within your Old Testament. If not, you have a few minutes to turn there because as we're heading that way, uh, I just want to say a couple of things. One, uh, it's, it's a really interesting week for me this week. I uh, had, had a lot of different things um, and depending on the week, uh, there's a varying level of interaction that I have beyond just our church body and into uh, some other churches that, that through different networks or different roles or different things that I do kind of connect with, consult with, work with other churches as well. Uh, and so sometimes it's very 
minimal and maybe a conversation or two during the week, and then other times uh, it takes a good amount of my time, which was this past week. Uh, and the reason I tell you that is because one of the things that you may or may not realize over the last uh, several months in uh, COVID-19 world is that the general prevailing feeling in churches is a great deal of anxiety, a great deal of frustration, and a great deal of uncertainty about how the church looks, acts, functions, and what's going on. And for church leaders, in most places, uh, it's a very unsettling thing, and they would regularly say that this has been one of the hardest years of their life. Uh, And what's been interesting is in those interactions, I always have a little bit of a a guilty feeling and a difficulty sort of relating to that because uh, we are so thankful for you uh, as a part of this church body and so thankful uh, we don't deserve to be here and and it's by God's grace that we get to spend time with you and and the Lord has been so good in his body here and so uh, I realize that that's probably not a strong suit of mine is encouragement and gratitude and so I just I felt like it's it's worth noting uh, how thankful I am that uh, God has matched us into this church body and, and you guys having patience with myself, my family, and uh, being a part of that, that we can kind of walk alongside one another worshiping the Lord together. And so thanks for that. That said, uh, let's talk a little bit tonight. Uh, I might yell at you a little, but not too much. All right. And I just said thank you, so I'm allowed to do that now, I think. All right, Nahum. Uh, we are walking into... The second of four minor prophets we're looking at in a series that we uh, aptly titled The Minor Prophets. Uh, We felt like the reason we wanted to do this was uh, we're walking up to uh, a pretty important election cycle in our American culture. And if you have watched anything on the news, social media, uh, anywhere you can imagine, what you find is that uh, one prevailing and unifying thought in all of it is everyone in the world wants you to believe that what happens in November will be maybe the most consequential thing that's ever happened in our lifetime, though I would warn you that's probably unwise to believe. Now, in that, uh, we felt like one of the ways we could show that to you uh, is during a state of kind of pandemic, chaos in the streets, difficulty all over the place, an impending election that has about 50% of the population anticipating or fearing what might happen, uh, we wanted to bring you back to a place biblically where we could show you that historically sin and the consequences of sin and the difficulty and uncertainty of life has dominated human history. That this is not simply an unprecedented or new thing. Uh, However, God is always at work in times of great unrest and in times of great uncertainty and in times for his people that were often very difficult. And so we spent three weeks walking through the book of Micah, which is a prophet who's speaking primarily to the nation of Israel, which consists of ten tribes of God's kingdom, uh, and he's speaking to them right before they're about to be obliterated. In fact, uh, the capital city of that nation is known as Samaria. And what happens is, in Micah's prophecy, he's warning that though God is in control, though God can be trusted, that the city of Samaria was about to be flattened into such a land that they would plant crops upon your great city and it would never again be rebuilt. This 
is exactly what happens. In fact, about 15, 20 years after Micah prophecies, it comes to pass. The Assyrian Empire comes in and they destroy, Assyri- they destroy Samaria and they take God's people and they exile out from the land of Israel and they bring in Assyrians to co-mingle the people of God, which if you know anything about the history of the Old Testament, that was the one nation uh, that God had chosen to be separate from other nations. Don't intermarry with these nations was the command of God that you would be my people distinct. And so the very nature of the Assyrian conquest and exile is to muddle them up both religiously, racially, and in all places and forms by doing so, disobeying the command of God and taking God's people that had been promised a land and pull them out of the land because of their disobedience in not submitting to the Lord. Meanwhile, he spares the nation of Judah who has done just a little bit better. We said the 200 years before that had been years of chaos, pain, death, and sin. And meanwhile, Judah, every once in a while in this time period, has a leader who comes into place who goes, hey, we should be following God. And there's a moment of reform that lasts about a generation only to be followed by people who walk idolatrous paths again. However, Because of that momentary reform, it had bought the nation of Judah some more time as God began to work and do some things in his nation. Uh, At the time we get to Nahum, uh, the kings most recent in the nation of Judah were guys named Hezekiah, Manasseh, and Josiah. Now, Hezekiah and Josiah were both men who followed the Lord. In the meantime, Manasseh, and then there's this guy named Ammon who a couple years in before he dies, uh, were not. And so they've had this ebb and flow of reform towards God and then pull away from God, and Nahum shows up to prophesy. So what we're going to look at, that kind of gets you to the point historically of where we're at, and then here's what we're going to do. Nahum is a three-chapter book in the Old Testament, a prophet who we know very little about, and I want to survey the whole text tonight in about 30 minutes, mostly focusing on the first two verses as they describe some attributes of God. Now, Here's, here's why we can spend 30 minutes describing two attributes of God. One, because it's, it's me and I can spend 30 minutes talking about anything. And two, uh, because they're not attributes that we as believers would run to first in describing the Lord. Look at it with me, okay? The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Did you catch that? Jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. What we're going to do over the course of the next few minutes tonight, and uh, we'll do the same thing tomorrow morning, is we're going to look at this picture of God given by Nahum as one who is jealous and avenging slash wrathful that God brings about his avenging wrath toward his enemies and what that looks like. Now, in order to do that, a couple, couple things we got to put into place. Uh, first is that we need to consider and remember. Here's, here's kind of this uh, general view in Christianity or among critics of Christianity that I think is missed often. Uh, It kind of goes like this. The God of the Old Testament 
is an angry, just, wrathful God. He wipes out nations and is very impatient with people. And the God of the New Testament is light and loving and fluffy and compassionate and seems a lot better to our senses. And so let's kind of focus on him. Now, that's not true. For several reasons. First of all, it's not true because you go and read the New Testament and you're going to find an entirely opposite picture from that. Nobody preaches about fire, brimstone, hell more than Jesus does. He's very consistent in warning about what might happen when you reject the Lord and teaching that wholesale worship of God is what is given and meant for us because God's judgment awaits those who don't submit to him. So New Testament, not all light and fluffy. In fact, you can't have light and fluffy unless you have wrath, jealousy, and justice. And Old Testament is not all about wrath, jealousy, and justice. You won't find ever in the Old Testament times where you get the wrath of God without noting the patience, mercy, and loving kindness of God. Look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. That Nahum himself is going to know that God's compassion, God's patience, and God's mercy is always coupled with his jealousy and his wrath. In fact, uh, if you notice at the very beginning, uh, this is an oracle of Nineveh. That means that Nahum the prophet had not gone to God's people, but was going to the people of Nineveh. So let me help you with that and fill that in. It might ring a bell for you. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. It was significant in size and impressive in what it had done and accomplished. There were uh, well over 100,000 people in the city of Nineveh, and they had built an empire that was unlike few others before it. In fact, uh, it had stretched uh, geographically longer than and bigger than almost any empire to that day and age. Uh, they were known as fierce warriors. In fact, they uh, had perfected the art of making tools out of forging steel. And so uh, rather than copper or bronze, they had better weapons, better tools, and more ability to kind of exact rule and justice in their empire. And they had been, for a long period of time, ruthless in the way that they had went about it. Now, Help me out a little bit. Who in the Bible has talked to Nineveh once before? You remember? Different prophet. Jonah. Yeah. Remember Jonah? Jonah and the big fish. Jonah and the whale. Jonah. Uh, in fact, here's, here's the account of Jonah uh, as you fill in the pieces of Jonah's prophecy to Nineveh. Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Heck no, he doesn't. Want to know why? Because Jonah was a Jew and Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, an angry and violent city. Jonah, in fact, uh, doesn't seem so unreasonable when he runs away from the Lord because here's his options. I either go into Assyria and preach that God is going to judge and destroy this city, and in doing so, this violent, angry people kill me, quite a possibility, or they repent and then God doesn't destroy the city like he said, and then I look like a fool. And not to mention, do I look like a fool, but Assyria stands waiting to destroy and exile my people, which in fact they did to the northern kingdom of Israel just a little while after Jonah shows up. Lose-lose situation. In fact, Jonah runs away, and here's what happens. After God compels Jonah, right? You remember, like, 
hey, here's a storm. Everybody goes, oh, we're going to die. And they look and go, I don't know why we're going to die. Something we've done offends the Lord, right? All these people on the ship. And Jonah goes, no, I did that, guys, right? And uh, like true sailors, they just throw them off the boat. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They throw them off, and the storm calms immediately, right? And uh, you can imagine that Jonah's probably thinking like, hey, we fixed it. Like, throw me the life raft, right? Doesn't get time for that. He is swallowed whole and then spends three days in the belly of a fish, as it's described in Scripture, spit up on shore and said, now, you ready? Go to Nineveh. Jonah shows up, and then uh, as he arrives, get this, he, pre- he preaches to me like the worst sermon in the history of mankind. Here's what he does. I'll read it to you. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. Whole sermon. For a whole day, walks down through the city, goes, hey, God's going to torch you in 40 days. What do you do? I don't care what you do. 40 days, you got 40 days. God is about to overthrow your city. 40 days, good luck, 40 days. That's it. That's the whole sermon, 40 days. Now here's what's amazing. The people of Nineveh, inspired working the Holy Spirit in their lives, decide maybe we could do something. It says they believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And then the word reached the king of Nineveh, He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. That was a uh, way culturally they would show a great deal of mourning and humility, believing that this was true. He issues a proclamation, says, hey, we are going to move. We're going to repent. We're going to change in this. And he says this, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. He might let go of his wrath. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. He gives them some time. Now, get this. Jonah is not excited about this. Right? Like, oftentimes in the Sunday school version, this is when we let go of this account, uh, it's not over. In fact, it says, this displeased Jonah greatly, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? I told you this is what was going to happen. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. There's some of those attributes that we said, oh, those are New Testament attributes showing up here in the history of Nineveh. Slow to anger, abundant in mercy, one who relents concerning calamity. In fact, Jonah even says, therefore now, oh Lord, please just take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. He's so angry about the, the compassion, the mercy, and the tender, loving kindness of God that he goes, I, t- I tried to tell you this, what was going to happen. I know you're a patient God. I know you're a compassionate God. I know you want people to trust you. And when they did, I knew you weren't going to destroy them. I didn't even tell them about that part. Right? I didn't even give them the like, hey, please repent option. Come on. 
I love this. And then we'll move back into Nahum. But, but I can't let this go, right? You know what the Lord says to Jonah? They're like, this is like the ultimate parent response. Do you uh, have a good reason to be angry? Like, hey, is this reasonable? Of course it's not reasonable. You are lamenting and enraged over my gracious compassion and loving kindness? We should rejoice in that. Just as now, a few generations later, when Nahum shows up on the scene, we rejoice in the fact that the Lord is jealous and avenging, that he's avenging and wrathful, that he takes vengeance on his adversaries, that he's not to be trifled with or treated lightly. You see, the central focus of our worship as believers, 2,700 years later, ought to be the full character and glory of God, even the aspects that seem dangerous and frightening and fearful as individuals who wouldn't know him or submit to him. Uh, we were, we uh, started, it's a little sidetrack, but I'm going to get you into why I think this is important. We started reading uh, a couple weeks ago the Chronicles of Narnia with our kids. And so uh, it's really been a, been a fun thing. Our kids are now at the age where uh, they can kind of grasp a little bit deeper concepts. And so uh, we just sat down, just picked up this book and started reading it to them. And so we read a couple chapters every night before bed and they're kind of watching. If you don't know what the Chronicles of Narnia is, it's uh, an author, C.S. Lewis, who writes in the, the 40s and 50s and builds out this metaphor of the Christian life and, and picks up this idea of what Christianity is. Jesus in this is represented by a lion named Aslan. And so uh, in this, these kids show up in this fairy tale land uh, dealing with the curse of a white witch representative of Satan and trying to figure out what it looks like to get out of this land as well as to figure out what's going on with their brother who has succumbed to this witch's curse. And out of it, they are talking to some beavers. And so the other day, here I am, I'm reading and like, I don't know if you do this, I do... You should do this. If you don't, if you've got kids, you read to them. Like, use voices, right? So I'm reading. I'm, like, making up voices of what I think a beaver would sound like. I'm just telling you, I did it to my kids. I'm not doing it to you. That was for the kids, right? And so uh, we're kind of talking in this beaver voice, and the kids ask these beavers about Aslan, the lion. And the question from one of the kids in the book is, a lion, is he safe? And there's a line from this beaver, the metaphor of Christ, right? It says, safe. He's a lion. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Right? Here's, here's what Nahum begins to lay out as he makes his case to Nineveh. That you and I are meant to worship a God who is good. Not a God who is safe. Not a God who we define. Not a God who we get to put into a box and live any way we choose and hope that he submits to it. But rather that we serve a God who has intentions and demands for our life. Primary among those is that our worship is directed to him and him alone. And when that is betrayed, he's not a God who is safe. He's a God who is good. In fact, he's a God who is jealous and avenging. Avenging and wrathful, taking vengeance on his adversary 
adversaries, reserving his wrath for his enemies. Here's, here's the first thing that's noted here, right? That God is jealous for his people. Now, let me, let me unfold that word and then explain to you why that mattered so much for the Assyrian Empire and for Nineveh in particular. Uh, we, we in our culture, I think, have built out this idea that jealousy is automatically a bad thing. Fair enough? Most of the time? You talk about somebody jealous, that's not normally a positive emotion uh, because normally you're speaking about a jealous girlfriend or you're speaking, not like I ever had one of those, um, you're speaking about, <laughs> I'm not going there, you're speaking about uh, some type of envy of others, right? You're jealous of somebody's success or somebody's jealous of your success uh, and in it, it elicits emotional response that's frequently negative. Uh, Envying someone or their achievements and advantages. Feeling or sowing suspicion of someone's unfaithfulness in a relationship. Fiercely protective or vigilant of one's rights or possessions. That you're covetous, you're envious, you're jealous. And in this, uh, it brings out negative and sinful behaviors. However, jealousy is an attribute of God in a far different way. God's jealousy is a demanding of faithfulness and exclusive worship. Here's how Moses put it. Uh, In Deuteronomy 4, Moses is preparing God's people to enter into the land that God was going to give them, knowing that he doesn't get to go in, and here's his final instructions to them. Watch yourselves, that you don't forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Here was, here was what jealousy in the eyes of the Lord is. God recognizes that worship is meant for him. He is the one worthy object of our worship. Therefore, he is the only thing that is deserving of our affections and he is jealous for them because when you give said worship and said affections to anything else, you ultimately settle from the one thing that is good and worthy of all of your worship into things that could never supply and never satisfy unlike the Lord. Here's, here's a had happened in Assyria. They came in to the northern kingdom of Israel. Annihilate, destroy, and exile God's people. They wipe out the city as a whole. They send God's people out. And the general idea behind conquest in that time was that in order to build an empire, you needed to establish your culture. The way you would establish your culture is you would take people out of their land and send them into lands that you had already conquered. And then you would take people from lands you already conquered and send them into the new lands. By mixing these people together, you would begin to build out what was your distinct imperial culture. Because throughout a few generations, you would kind of breed that in. Now, here's what happened in the nation of Israel when this all goes down. Uh, God's angry. In fact, he's angry. He's not willing to allow this to rest. And so 2 Kings 17 tells us that in this anger, there's bloodshed and unrest following the exile. And he even sends in lions who are killing people. They can't get a hold of it. And so people come to the emperor of Assyria and say, hey, 
this thing is going south in a hurry, and I think it's because nobody's worshiping the God of the land out there. And so here's what the king of Assyria does. He says, okay, uh, we can fix that. Send in some priests. Uh, Here's how he commands it. Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile. Let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Sounds like a good deal, right? Hey, okay, let them know God. And then it goes on and says this. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. Every nation in their cities in which they lived. They also feared the Lord Appointed and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the customs of the nation from among whom they had been carried away into exile. Here's the solution of Assyria. It wasn't to reject God. It was to bring him and set him on the same level as all of the rest of the idols. That you worshiping is a good thing in and of itself, what you worship in all that important. Now you fast forward 2,700 years. Is that not the prevailing culture that we live in? That religion in and of itself is noble and worthy and good. And if you have some type of moralistic compass and if you just do enough good things, ultimately the object of your worship isn't what matters. It's that you have decided that you're going to go to church and that you're going to study the Bible and that you're going to be a good person or that you uh, have found yourself some other equivalent of such a thing. That you volunteer at a homeless shelter. You go to a soup kitchen or you're on this volunteer fire department or whatever it might be, that you've found a way to provide yourself an act of worship without considering the object of your worship. And God, jealous for the affections of his people, is unwilling to let that stand. Here's here's one of the most dangerous things, I think, that exists in rural American culture replacing the fact that you and I are sinners saved only by the grace and mercy of God with the idea that we're good people and ultimately we should just be doing good things. And those good works will damn you away from hell, away from God into hell and his wrath over and over and over again. It happens. Because ultimately the object of our worship is replaced by the idea of at least we're worshiping something. This is exactly what Assyria did. And God's coming to wipe them out. And he does. Uh, In fact, the next passage here in verse 3, it says he picks up and uh, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. 
Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him. And the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by it. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. God is jealous for his people, in his goodness holds his people, and in his jealousy for his affections of his people, he brings about his wrath, his avenging hand to those who resist him eventually. Right? Here's, here's the second attribute we see in there, that God is avenging and wrathful, and yet what Jonah didn't see that Nahum did was that God's patience here on this earth often delays his avenging wrath. And that we, 2,700 years later, can rest in the peace of knowing that God is just in all things. Because it wasn't just Assyria. In fact, before Assyria, Egypt was the greatest empire that the world in its ancient time had ever seen. That it expanded and moved in ways that nothing else had ever reached before, and God wipes it clean. He does the same with the Assyrian Empire by an empire known as Babylon. They come in, reign for a short time, and they're wiped out by an empire named Rome, who, or by an empire named Persia, who comes in and reigns for a short time and is wiped out by an empire named Rome, who comes in and reigns for a short time and is wiped out because God continues to topple empires and save and carry through his people. Great is the Lord and worthy of worship. Here's, here's why this is good news for us. Look at the end of chapter 1 in the book of Nahum. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The jealousy and the avenging wrath of God is always good news for God's people, for saved sinners like you and I. Here's, here's what the nation of Judah looked forward to. They sit at the time of Nahum waiting for Assyria to come in and destroy them as it had the nation of Israel, as it had its neighbors all around them, thinking it's just a matter of time before they were destroyed, pillaged, dead. And there's God going, no. No. In my jealousy, in my wrath, you have but two choices. To be an object of my justice or to be an object of my grace and my mercy. And the same reigns true today. 
that everyone who has ever existed will stand before the glory of God and answer to it as either an object of His justice and His wrath poured out upon our sin or knowing that His wrath has been fully satisfied in Jesus who poured out Himself for our sin. And that we appeal not to the justice and the wrath of God, but that we appeal to His grace and His mercy, not because any one of us are good enough for it, but because we have one who came and laid down his life for us. The beauty of the gospel is that it's the only thing that can satisfy both the holy, righteous justice of God against sin and the loving, gracious kindness of God towards sinners. It's only accomplished in Christ. Pray with me. Let's do this. We're going to pray. And then so that we might vividly remember and know that God's just wrath has been spared those who place faith in Christ. We'll finish tonight. We'll take the Lord's Supper. A representation of his broken body and his shed blood for us. Pray with me. Lord, you are good. We're thankful that you are a jealous God. Jealous for our affections. Jealous for us. That we might place you as the throne of our life. That we might see above all things that We're meant to be a people who worship you and you only. Lord, I pray that we consider your avenging wrath as as not a bad thing, not a safe thing, but a good thing. That you won't allow sin to remain, that you won't allow sin injustice to reign but that you make all things just through the atoning sacrifice of Christ help us celebrate that tonight as we remember with the Lord's Supper we pray it in Jesus name amen we ask our young people to join us for this we always think it's good for them to see uh, what is the one of the two ordinances of the church in fact uh, we had this really cool privilege uh, for some of you uh, who were with us today. We went up to Governor Dodge, and uh, Dave got to baptize one of our youth group kids, uh, Blake Olson. And so uh, really awesome to see what is the other ordinance of the church, which is this picture of the covenant of, of eternal life in Christ, right? You place faith in Christ and buried with him in likeness of his death, raised to walk in new life, that you are alive in spirit. And then Jesus gives us the second picture of our covenant relationship with him, what we call ordinances of the church, things that we're reminded that we should do with regularity, and he calls it the Lord's Supper. He does it uh, the night in which he was betrayed. He takes bread, and he breaks it and teaches. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, recalls this teaching and says, for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he goes on to talk about the nature of this not being something that we would do lightly, but rather that the purpose was to remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. In fact, his command is that you would first examine yourselves and then take the Lord's Supper because you eat and drink judgment unto yourself if you don't judge the body rightly. In other words, if you just make this about religious festival or uh, something that is done out of habitual, mundane uh, normalcy, you've missed it. And, and you treat God as if he's not important and you therefore reign not in the grace and mercy of Christ but in the judgment of God. And so uh, we take a minute in silence to pray, uh, give you an opportunity to reflect upon the fact that you, if you know the Lord, don't rest under the avenging wrath of God but under the gracious, tender, loving kindness found in Christ who brought the wrath of God upon himself so that you and I might have grace and mercy and salvation. And so I'm going to take us, give us a minute to pray in silence, and then I'll close us in prayer together, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper.
Father, we just thank you for just how great you are. We thank you that you're a God who desires to have a relationship with us. That each and every week, each and every day, we get the opportunity to talk to you. We get the opportunity to see how wonderful and big you are. And we just continue to pray and ask that you help us with our unbelief. Help to continue to answer some of those questions that we still continue to have. Help us to continue to increase in faith when it comes to not understanding all the answers to life. And we don't have to have all the answers to life, but we know that you do. And we put our hope and our trust in you, and we continue to pray and ask that you would be the Lord of our life. And we just thank you for that wonderful blessing, just the grace that you've bestowed upon us. And we just praise your name for it. Amen. You guys have a good night.